From the Toddcast Studios in Ottawa, Ontario, you're listening to Talking Feds. This is Episode 5. Hello and welcome, GC. I'm Todd Lyons. And on this edition of Talking Feds, part four of a six-part series deconstructing the Red Tape Reduction Initiative at Treasury Board of Canada Secretariat. In parts one through three, we hashed out the planning and engagement phases for this initiative and looked at the G's and C's workshop. This time, we'll delve into the second of the three workshop sessions. Come with me. So here we are. This is this is the fourth session? Fourth session. Fourth session. And you've been at least part of the three of those four sessions. And the last time uh, I met with your charming colleagues, and we actually did a little portion where I talked about their background. So here's your big chance. Okay. Tell us a little bit about your background. Um, and and I guess you introduce yourself also because we haven't done that yet. Oh, okay. Hi, I'm Blazebach. Um For those who don't know me, uh, <laughs> um, I'm – I've – been in the public service for eight, almost nine years now, almost nine years. Um, and a lot, like a lot of public servants, I didn't actually plan on coming here. Um, it's purely, purely accidental. Um, in fact, I, I made it a purpose to do, to not do a few things in my life. I, in 1994, I took a web programming, like a, an HTML programming class. And I told myself I would never use it in my professional life ever. And the other thing I decided was that I would never, since I'm from Ottawa and everybody goes into government jobs, I would do my best to never work in government. Uh, lo and behold, uh, those two things happen roughly at the same time. So, well, that's not, enti- not entirely true, but anyways. Um, I'm mostly, I'm, I've got a background in 3D animation. I spent lots and lots of years like honing those design skills to be able to to work in that field and work in that in that industry, and I discovered uh, once I got there after twelve years uh, that I really hated the culture there. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm I'm collaborative by nature. I love games. Uh, I I learn a lot from people and uh, for how they interact in the world, and so that gives me the insight to, to design either more processes that that motivate or stimulate people to actually give me things or give me the answers that I need um, in order to actually understand complex systems like staffing, for example. Um, so when you when we're on this project, we had this like, just, just to recap, we had a huge challenge of trying to understand very complex systems that we basically use in terms of like very simple tasks or although they look very simple on the surface of trying to staff other people or in other cases, you know, um, procure service goods and services or in other cases actually try to get grants and contributions to um, to groups of Canadians that need it. Um, and so um, what we did was try to just, you know, the activities that led to the workshop was basically we heard all these things happening from across the entire system. Um, that there were, I think, 140 groups attempting to solve some of these challenges that that they and others and us have surfaced over on on uh, on you know such wonderful subjects as like process, you know, access to technology, services, and so forth. But we wanted on from our perspectives. Wow, I 
feel I need to go back and forth on this, but it's okay. Um, from our perspective, like our zone of influence is so limited because we're like, we're at treasury board. So, oh yeah. Yeah. This is like, um, spoiler alert. Treasury board can't do a lot of things for departments. Um, no. <laughs> spoiler alert. Uh, we have no or very little influence on how departments conduct themselves outside of like measuring for, for success. Um, so when it comes to having like a, a team, at a central agency such as ours, the only thing you can do is enable other groups to try to do something different. And so we saw our role as pretty much the interface to uh, big challenges. So we saw ourselves as the interface to departments in the face of challenges in staffing procurements and G's and C's. And so we thought about what would a like what would like a research project look like to try to determine what are like some of the big challenges and uncovering the root causes and ultimately looking for solutions. And so now this is where it gets really tricky because um, when I originally, when I was tasked originally to come up with a design for this, I set it up in such a way that the design for the workshops were purposely built to only find problems. They weren't designed to find solutions. That was another set of workshops that was on the plan. Um, <laughs> so... So basically, uh, we set up, or I set up a, I designed an, I think it was six or seven weeks by then, six or seven weeks of workshops to move participants from several departments and understanding from their perspective, what does the system look like? Like in staffing, what, like who's involved? What does it involve in terms of actions? Who's involved in the department? Try to flesh out what that system looks like. And then go at it and try to determine, okay, so what is the most common process that they use to like to, to get the job done? And lo and behold, they, they do have one. Like in staffing, it's the um national the advertise it's an advertised process with a national scope. That's what they use 80% of the time when they deal with staffing issues or deal with staffing requests. Um and after that, after we basically mapped out what that process looked like, we asked them to look at every single step in the process and ask themselves the question, is the requirement here determined because of, a, of an outside policy, such as TBS uh, or, or uh, Public Service Commission, um, or is it a departmental policy that requires them to do this? Is it a departmental practice that is common across the department, but isn't laid out in any document form? Or is it purely an individual choice? And um, and then we'll get to the details of what that means. I'm skipping through a lot of questions, and I apologize. Wow. Have you mentioned all the participants for these no, workshops? No, I haven't. Oh, my God. Oh so my we can God. do that. We should, we should totally go back and talk about the participants. So, yeah. So led up to the workshops. I'll just finish leading up to the workshops. So we designed these things. Participants, we decided to invite. And it was really interesting because um, after we had our big event, try to sell the idea that we're going to do something of a deeper dive. Um, from these 70 groups, you had at least 20 that were like, we're in, we're in, we're totally in, we're going to do this. So we had in all, uh, I think we had for staffing, we had nine or 10 groups that were initially interested and we landed on, okay, I'm going to say them and then we're going to count the number and okay. that's going to be the number we landed on. So we landed on uh, public works, uh, departments and fisheries and oceans, citizenship and immigration, NRCAN and uh, TBS, but mostly TBS 
because of Okro, and we also had the aiding particip participation of the Public Service Commission to bring in both Okro and the Public Service Commission had policy expert in the room. So we had expertise, access to expertise of all policies throughout the entire process. That was our group. And um, the assumptions going in, oh my God, the assumptions. I remember that first session when we had the assumptions. There was a lot of things that were along the lines of Everyone's going to find that silver bullet to solve the problem that they haven't identified. Um, there was a lot of talk of innovation. There was a lot of talk, like so much talk of technology. Like uh, it, it seemed like all of our problems could be fixed by automation. Um, but that's usually what happens at the start of the process before you've actually dug into the problems. Other assumptions, I think our assumptions from, from our end was that we would get to a place where we would know precisely an area that we can affect and then move into coming back and designing solutions with them. That was a, that was a huge assumption that we had. Um, it didn't turn out to be the case, but, you know, it, it happens. Um, and then I, I, that also lays into my expectations. My expectations, um, this is messy work. <laughs> This is extremely messy work. Um, when you have a workshop that's looking at something and it's not giving you what you need, you have to go back to the drawing board to find another design that will actually answer that because that question needs to be answered and you need to have the right information. You need the data to back it up. You need all of that. And so I think our expectation was it was almost a bit amateurish to think that we could get at it with our initial thoughts of what a design could look like. And so throughout the entire process, we had to challenge our own assumptions of, is this giving us, is this design giving us what we need or do we need to rethink it? And just like we did in the engagement, when that was like one of the last recordings we did, we had to rethink that model all the way through. So it's a lot more dynamic than, than most people assume it is. Um, so that leads into what were the workshops, and I started answering that, but I'll go through the eight weeks. So week one was to understand the system. So in the system, we had um, who are the players in the system and what do they do in the system. On the second week, we looked at um, the most common process, and we broke down the process into steps. The third week, we started looking at the drivers. So I talked about this, if the drivers were from... Uh, central policy, uh, central agency policies, if they were departmental policies, departmental practices, or individual practices. Um, after we had the requirements, by the way, oh yeah, oh my God, that's the biggest assumption of them all. The biggest assumption of them all, and literally everyone has this. Everyone assumes, and I, this is the most broadest sweeping statement that I will make, that basically I've learned that most people make when they think about red tape. That red tape is due because of rules. And when they mean rules, they mean policy. And when they mean policy, they mean TBS policy. So that the rules dictate what you, what we can and can't do. That is the biggest assumption on the internal red tape reduction project initiative thinger. Um, and that's wrong. It's utterly, utterly, utterly wrong. <laughs> so you're definitely going to tell us what really is the truth, because that's the same assumption that, that yeah, that I guess I would have too. Yes. We're yes. forced into doing it this way yes. because there's some policy yes. somewhere that says that you have to do it this way. So do you want me to give the punchline right now? I don't know. Like, 
<laughs> you could make me wait for it. I'll it would be that much sweeter at the I'll, end. I'll make you wait for it. All right. I'll totally make you wait for okay. it. Okay. Okay. So that was the assumption. Like we were we were gunning for policies, like to the point where we were linking existing projects together. There's a policy suite reset happening in the same in the same uh, branch as we are. So one. Uh, so they thought that we would feed in all of the all of our work into their work, and then it would be like magical policy synergy bliss that we could change things for all public servants. But reality is more complex than we think. Mm. So uh, the approach itself, we used a, cent- an, a user-centric approach. And now, so what that means, and I'm sure other groups have explained this already, is that we as a government do not design services for users. We design services based on business requirements and political directions and stuff like that. And so as a result, when we hit inefficiencies or when we don't hit our metrics or when we get bad feedback or let's say, for example, if you look at the, the stories we heard in the first, the first phase of the project where the majority of the red tape that's being found is in the lack of service and the lack of clarity to know what to do. So as public servants, it's like we're not necessarily clear, which means that the services and the, 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 the processes that we design may not actually be the right ones for the ones taking on the tasks. So what we did is we actually went out to understand from multiple perspectives how how things looked in the present sense. So we want to know from the experience of our, our working group, which were in our case made of HR advisors from the four departments mm-hmm. and from hiring managers with specifically very little experience in hiring and then a lot of experience in hiring. Because we wanted to see that discrepancy of how much do you know, how much does a manager need to know in order to do this, and what's the difference between that and a practice manager who's who's done this for a long time. Um, so, and it's through those insights that we would gain an understanding of like where the root cause actually, what are the root causes of the challenge that we have. And I can talk about the challenge until the cows come home. There are literally hundreds of challenges, but the root cause. We'll get to that in a bit. All right. Um, so the participants' reactions when we started, their their reaction was they come to the table already have done stuff. So they've leaned out their processes. They made recommendations to the – it was mostly all related to the process. A lot of people were, were modifying the process. Um, there was the case of uh, fisheries, Department of Fisheries and Oceans, that was taking a step – even further by going out and looking at how planning works in the system. And so planning is a, it's a huge element. It's a huge problem even where um, when it comes to planning, there is a very much, it's supposed to be in the hands of the manager to basically flesh out how he's going to hire someone. And it's the job of the HR advisor to basically guide him through that initial drawing up a plan. But that manager has to do those first steps. It's not HR that initiates it. It's a manager that initiates initiates a conversation with HR that leads to a planning discussion. And But it seems that the planning discussion goes awry a lot in most departments and that managers don't feel that they necessarily have the right equipment or the tools or understanding to develop a plan and that HR is not necessarily armed with the strategic knowledge to help managers flesh out that plan. So when you have um, DFO who is trying to find 
other ways, incentive models to push managers to think about, you know, when they put in their plan. So they they had a they had a a, a project in place where they would give, I think, if I understand, and I might be wrong on this because I don't have all the data in front of me, but if I understand correctly, they were given a standard amount of time of I think eight weeks to provide a plan after they initiate the. Um, um, the, the staffing request, but if they provided a plan within that eight weeks, they would get an extra four weeks to develop their assessment tools. So it's like it's a carrot and stick model that if you give a plan within the desired timelines, then you get extra time to develop your assessment models than if you don't develop a plan within the, the timeline. So it's like so that was a very interesting approach. But that's just like one of the segments where you had DFO was ahead of the ahead of the curve where they were trying to redefine every concept under the sun because they were seeing massive challenges across the board. While other departments were more interested in looking at specifically automating or the administrative side of the process. That's that's going to be important later. So in the activities themselves, I'll walk through most of the activities, oh, I forgot a whole bunch of activities when I talked about what the workshops are doing. This is me just rambling on. Now's your chance to okay. get them back Yay. in. I'm backing up. Okay, so after we understood the, the the drivers, then we looked at, wait, yeah, the drivers were that. Then in the process, we looked at the drivers. Then we looked at all the challenges for each of the steps. And that was magical because for every step, you could nail down about 15 different challenges. And um, on the flip side of that, that was from the HR advisor side, our user group, oh, sorry, our, our working group was from the HR side of things. When we interviewed, okay, I'll stop. I have too many things to say. It's like, it's like a massive <laughs> blooming onion of ideas. You're just a fountain of information oh, I that am. it's, I am. Th- there's, there's no valve, I guess, to shut no, it down. But no, I apologize. It's at least good energy. So just, yeah. Okay. We'll see where it goes to. All right. Okay. So after we did that, we did the challenges. After we did the challenges, we um, looked at what the root causes could be for each of them. So it was interesting because we used a five whys exercise. And it's like, it's it's a kind of mentality that um, um, children are really good at. So two-year-olds are wonderful at asking why for everything. And your job is to is to go through that same questions until you get to the point where you can't answer why anymore or it becomes in a place where you you have literally no control over that Mm -hmm. so if it becomes an absolute like um it's a political decision or it's a structural decision it's based on a budget decision or it's based on behaviors for example then it's like then that's roughly it that's as far as you possibly can go on the on 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 the scale this also requires you to look at like um your own operations on how to do things. And it also requires you to ask your colleagues. And so we were pushing our people to, our participants to not only work for themselves, but ask their colleagues, work around. And most did. Um, Surprisingly, we got a lot of support from some departments to do that. After we did that, that was as far as we could go into understanding what the the, the present looks like with with our our, um, HR advisors. Then we went out and actually interviewed managers from all of those departments to reflect and validate the experience that that our participants were having. And that was uh, that was super interesting. I'll get into the details later. Um, then after we were done with that, we basically fleshed out personas based from the two like the two types of users that we found. So the least experienced users and the 
user, the hiring managers with a lot of experience and then the managers with a lot of experience. And we nailed down what they saw. We went through all the material with our participants. There was a lot of aha moments, I'll tell you that. And then after that, we kind of started looking at, now that we understood the perspective of the present, we wanted to start looking at the future. And so I'm, I'm just as a, an aside, I'm from a, like, I've been trained into foresight. And I believe that foresight is one of those tools. Foresight is the ability to inductively think about the future and how it relates to an issue that matters to you and to understand and to look and research to see if how impactful some of these future stories or scenarios that you create could impact your work in the coming years. And the way that you do that is by, you, so you inductively think about what could happen if this, if, you know, AI or automation would, would be a thing, how could that impact my work for the next 10 years? You, so you usually play the game of if this, then then what? And you do that until you have enough of the story. Then you can go and research all these markets, markers to see are any of these happening somewhere in reality right now? And the more that you're, you can confirm these things is happening, the more likely that these events are to hit you. And so you have to understand what does that mean in terms of a planning perspective and in terms of a, a policy perspective from your sake to either increase the, the positive outcome for you or to decrease the negative outcomes. Mm -hmm. So that's in a nutshell, that's foresight. And so what I wanted us to do is to look at Drivers that were very important and that were going to be changing the way that we were going to do staffing. Lo and behold, we have huge ones that happened in the last year. Um, we have, uh, now I'm getting to the detail, details and I apologize for that. So the three ones that we looked at was um, MyGCHR, which is basically an automated repository. We'll talk about it later. Um, the PSC policy framework, which shifts the pendulum in such a way that puts all departments responsible for all of their hiring practices. It makes deputy heads uh, responsible instead of putting PSC responsible. So that is moving to a world of decentralization. Even though my GCHR and the common HR business practice, practice which is another one, are basically moves to centralization through TBS centralization. Mm. So these two are very interesting on their own, but put together, they create an even more complex future. And so after that, we basically looked at all those change drivers, interviewed the experts, and then worked at how these change drivers would affect or could affect our process. We're on that later. And then <laughs> after we kicked out some of that, we looked at... Um, we had this session that failed miserably um, that was looking at trying to understand what other factors could change over time. So what concepts such as governance, technologies, practice, and uh, behaviors could disappear over time, what others could emerge, and how we were going to get in between them. That scared the living bejesus out of everyone <laughs> because there was no framework to talk about that. So in the last session, the final last session, what we ended up doing was we ended up doing a memory lane. And a memory lane is a wonderful exercise to show to every single participant in the room that they've lived through massive amounts of society change in their lifetimes. And so the way that you do that is you make a grid. And so imagine like um, uh, just a, a vertical horizontal grid. And on the top um, row, you have decades. 
And so the blocks of decades, so 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000, 2010s. And then on the left column, you have categories such as world events, pop culture. Uh, in our case, we looked at government, the Canadian government, technology, and something else. Let's say staffing practices. I think that's what is it. And the whole point is for participants to just come up with, on sticky notes, times or events that are marked by the crossing of the decades and the category. So let's say, for example, you know, the internet was invented in 1991. So you put the internet in the 1990s and it lasts about 20 minutes. And for 20 minutes, people just popcorn ideas of like, of events that have happened in the past that they lived through and they understand. And they talk about that. Everybody giggles. Oh my God, we're so old. Oh my God. But then the whole point is to look back at the board and say, you know, you guys came up with 50 events that happened in the last 40 years, 50 meaningful milestones. That happened in the last 50 years. You've lived through massive amounts of change already. Now let's think about future change. And so that's a really good way of moving the participants from going, oh, God, I'm overwhelmed when I'm thinking about the future, too. It's not that hard when you see what you've already lived through. So it's like, oh, OK, well, yeah, well, it's not hard to say that the Internet could change like this if I know that or that, you know, we could see government becoming more decentralized as a function of time or being more open or those things. And so what we did as our last activity is to look at solutions for core problems. So we took the core, some of the core um root causes of the things that we looked at. And then we said, I, I want us to design three desired changes that we want to see in the system. One that is affects the individual HR advisor, one that affects the process level, and one that affects the system. So now we'll go back to the past. <laughs> now that you know the entire schematic of what we've done, um, Reactions from the participants throughout the entire process was that I think they were just continuously surprised. They assumed everybody knew everything. The, so it's like they a assumed everyone knew anything, everything, but they also assumed that they were special and that their experience, experiences were unique. So their experiences, their process, their challenges, their users, everything is unique. Which is not necessarily wrong to think because we are still like, like I mentioned before, we're still 40 organizations that make up the government. So, of course, there's going to be variations. Those variations are pretty small. <laughs> when it comes to staffing, those variations are pretty small. Um, they pretty, pretty much, they have, when it comes to having that, that, uh, the advertised process with the national scope, they are all roughly 99.9% the same. So they go through the same process. Um, they have discrepancies in terms of departmental practice, but that's about it. Um, the process looks pretty much the same if you go to Anarchan or Public Works or Citizenship or so forth and so on. So that gives us a wonderful baseline of everything's the same. But it, it pushes us to actually understand why is it so problematic and um, what we've come to understand is that the process is problematic because of the process that we use. So the option to use the most transparent, um, long, most requirements is it's, it's a decision that we take upon ourselves. Like we use this process because we don't want to use other processes. Because this is the safest thing to use and it minimizes most of the, if done well, it minimizes 
all the risks of, or most of the risks of complaints, which could lead to grievances, which could lead to, um, to um, uh, council hearings. So we use this, but the problem by using this is that it still takes nine, it takes on average six to nine months to get an employee out of it. Um, it requires massive amounts of, pr- of approval and planning and design of assessment tools and all the things. So that is pretty much something that we do upon ourselves. And the reason why we pick it, well, there is an element, there is a large element of fear, and that's where the risk story comes in. So the risk story, um, from what we've understood, and there's a lot of things, and I'm skipping a lot of things, and I apologize for that. The, the risk is that there's a complete fear of an audit. So the audit, oh, that's a grievance, audit, council hearing. That's the order of things. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's a fear that there's going to be an audit because the audit, like, it penalizes HR advisors and does not penalize managers whatsoever. So HR advisors are bred in an environment where they fear the repercussions of the worst case scenario of a staffing audit, which will lead to the worst case scenario of someone getting fired. But, <laughs> but. <laughs> um, we pulled out the stats of um, how many times that has happened in reality. So the complaints. So we actually found the stats, the complaints uh, that lead to the audit, which lead to all the things. And so, for example, the last ones, 2013, 2014, the number and the number is pretty much um, uh, has pretty much not changed or has been has been close to the same for the last I think five years as the data if we've seen it since 2011. So the percentage of uh, of staffing actions that have resulted into a complaint, not even an audit, just a complaint, is in between 0.02 percent wow. and 0.04 percent of the time. So we use the most complicated, transparent, longest process that we know because we fear that the worst case scenario will happen all the time, even though in reality it practically never happens. So it's not rules that stop us in the end. It's personal behaviors based on assumptions. And so that's a lot more complicated to deal with. So some of the uh, – so I'm just going to go back. Um, so in the findings, the other findings that we found, and so that's like the cat's out of the bag. Um, it was very interesting when we walked through the, the drivers for the um, the process map, after we did the process map, there were a lot of time where departments were like, no, that's central agency policy. They would say that a lot. And in the back, you would have both TBS and PSC just silently shake their heads going, no, it's not. <laughs> and there were a lot of moments where it's like, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm sure it is. I'm, I'm sure it is. And then they, they would be like, somebody would be on their phone looking at the policy and say, oh, well, look at that. It's not. And so it then becomes a departmental practice. So it's like, so if you think about this, policy creates all these rules for what we're supposed to do, but it leaves enough flexibility in most of its rules to let departments decide how they're going to interpret that. And departments usually take it upon themselves to fill that vacuum with their own interpretations, which means that it's no longer the the TBS or the PSC rule. It's the interpretation from that department's perspective of what they think the rule should mean. Okay. (laughs) That changes from one department to the other. There is 
some consistency, but it's not completely consistent, which means that although you can change the policy rules at the top, but it won't affect much. In fact, the areas where, um, T- where like central agency policy like really kick in is because of legislation in the Employment Act itself, uh, security requirements, official languages, and I think duty to accommodate. And that's, that's it. And so that's like, that's three chunks in the process that is completely out of the department's control. But that still represents about only 25% of the entire process if you use the, the national, um, the advertised process. So that's 25% of it you can't do anything with. 75%, it's up to you to decide. So, and depending on your department, you may have, and the PS, the new PSC framework allows you all the flexibility in the universe to look at things like if you're trying to promote someone internally to your team, instead of doing that competition when you're just going to assign it somebody to your team, you can use the talent management option in the um, uh, performance management, um, performance manage PMA. What's the A stand for again? It's crazy. Right? I'm the worst with acronyms and initials. Yeah, yeah, I'm terrible with those things. Like it's it's so the performance management agreement, the A stands for agreement. That's it. And so you can use the le- you can leverage um, leverage a promotion through that. You can use a non-advertised positions. There is multiple tools that people can like. There are multiple options that we can use to staff new positions. It's not necessarily like the one and only thing. And usually the one and only thing is dictated by popularity. Culture, I hate to use that word. By the way, this is a word that I banned from my sessions. Culture, innovation, and there's another one. Anyways, because they're bucket words, because when we use them, we want to say something else, but we're either afraid of saying that thing or something like that. So we use the word culture instead. So when we when I say culture, someone says culture, innovation, or any other word that comes up to mean different things, I usually say stop participant, what are you trying to say in this precise, what does culture stand for in this precise moment? And then they would say, well, you know, it's like fear of risk. I'm like, okay, well, say that then. (laughs) The fear of risk. Okay, it's fear of risk. Okay. And so, um, so yeah, so I completely lost my point. But it's, it's those, uh, (laughs) it's those things that, that are usually. You do it in such an entertaining (laughs) way though. So just don't, don't be, just, yeah, don't be fearful. Just keep pressing forward. It's good. All right. Um, other findings. Uh, what were the other findings? Ah, oh, crap. I wish I had the document in front of me. We have this wonderful thing. Um, yeah, so the process was the big one. Um, the fact that HR advised, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, here's the big kicker. Yeah. When you use this giant process, oh, yeah, and then we can talk about my GCHR. Okay. HR advisors perform in the typical process a very administrative function. But... When it comes to having trouble and understanding how to give, they have to sometimes give advice. And so the more that we look for administrators to a process, the less likely we are going to be training advisors. And so as a result, the reason why we always have the same process is because we're always advising on the same process without thinking of what are the conditions that we're trying to meet? What are the client conditions that, or that we're trying to build a service around? And so because of that, there's kind of this, there's this um, disparaging view where HR advisors are trained to act 
in an administrative capacity while still being pulled into a strategic one or a strategic advisory one. And on this side, we're on the administration side, we're supporting them wholeheartedly by, you know, pumping into tools and, and, and things. But that only works if you know what you're going to do. As soon as you hit a wall and you have to think strategically, they're not equipped for that. They don't have the tools. They don't have the know-how. There's very little training. And there's such a high turnover rate in HR advisors that they move up very quickly without necessarily acquiring a lot of that strategic experience. So they may get at a very high point but not have the analytical skills or the advisory skills mm-hmm. to actually give out um, – build new uh, new ways or specific ways of working. So there's that, like, that complete lack of building the strategic advisory capacity in HR. That's a huge one. And on the flip side of that, um, we're trying to automate. Well, I'll be honest. <laughs> we're trying to automate. And by trying in five to ten years, we might be in a place where <laughs> – Things might start to look like automation and less like document repository. My, my GCHR is supposed to be this centralized platform that, that makes it easier for everyone, HR advisors and managers, to share documents. But all it is right now is a document management system that is used so that someone has a record of all the decisions taken throughout the standard process. That's it. And so from the perspective, and I, and I speak very honestly because from the perspective of departments, a lot of the, de- I think three out of the five departments that we had already had systems in place with some form of automations, assessment building tools. Um, uh, they had all sorts of things. And so now they're asked to, to integrate this new way of working on top of what they currently have. Because it's the assumption that this service replaces what they have in terms of departmental practice. The problem is, is that it's not up to the standard. So a lot of departments are downgrading their services by taking on this new software. The software is made from business requirements and not user design. So that might explain some things. And so as it stands, most departments will probably be using both at the same time. Which means that HR advisors, we've just now created red tape for HR advisors to act upon. Yeah. So, yeah. That's... I wish this was an audio. You, you could see me shaking my head. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And what were the other things? Uh, so lack of tools. Uh, managers uh, wish they had more flexibility. Uh, so when you talk about the managers, so like from the manager perspective, I didn't spend a lot of time talking to managers. That's awful. From the manager perspective, like, it's all in, why do I have to use this process? Like, why can't I just do X, X, Y, and Z instead? And so the, the fear of the audit, or the fear of we're only going to use this process basically stops managers dead in their tracks. For the more, for the more experience, we've talked to managers who are like, they know that in March, they're going to be hiring 20 people every year. So they, they've pretty much like, they have their own processes. They have their own things. They just like, um, cycle through them every year. But for new managers, it's it's like, for some, it's a giant nightmare. In some departments, there are some administrative cores that have been created to fast track. So they'll hire administrators to do like the administration side that the manager is supposed to do. There's an awful term. 
called shadow shops that I've learned um, that managers who have money. So instead of doing the paperwork themselves, they will hire administrative pools to do the, 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 like the administrative function of that instead of doing it themselves. But that only works if you have funds. If you don't have funds, then you're like your SOL. 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 You're SOL and you pretty much have to walk through it without, with little, very little support because again, HR advisors aren't built to give advice. They're built to administer a process because that's the standard process that we use. So it can be very bewildering for a new manager. So, um, yeah, it's very strange. It's a very strange thing. What are the participants' feedback at the end? They really enjoyed it. I think they were really looking, for the most part, they were, everyone was thinking that we were going to get solutions out of this process. Except me, um, because. The, because you're a negative person. <laughs> no, okay. no, it's literally because the process we called problem identification process. Okay. <laughs> and there was another process that was supposed to start in January called, you know, prototype design and testing. Okay. So. <laughs> So although there was suddenly an expectation at the end of the project to come up with solutions, that was never its goal. And so whatever recommendations we make are are still very in the beginning stages of understanding. So for the next steps, what we tried to what we attempted to do on staffing, for example, is like behavior is a huge issue. Like that's the kicker. It's individual behavior. If you want to, if you want to change staffing, you have to change individual behaviors of individual people in the decision making process everywhere around the board. And there's like, there's no magical solution for that. Like it does not exist. You literally have to go in and change manage or look at structural incentive models and like that big heavy stuff that is not a silver bullet, that is not a low hanging fruit. It is like organizational transformation to the core of its bones right here. We can't do that. <laughs> That's too bad. I know, I know, it's too bad. So what we uh what we tried, what we attempted to do in January, and I think it's it's January and people like I there's a lot of um there's a lot of movement, especially this year with everything that's changing, we tried to, we put in, um, we designed a, um, an, an interview to try to get at some of the core behavioral insights that HR advisors have. We had some responses and, um, but I think it, it warrants more review into actually knowing like, how does, you know, how does one individual make the decision to go to this safe safe place to work or why do we choose this option over that option and and to look at um how like how are individuals working in HR evaluated what are they based on is it a quanti- quantification like how much how many cases did you pass in a year which what might be more on an administration side versus giving advice and so there's there's that kind of like giant complex model to like start unpacking and and start looking at and then thinking how can we actually design a better way to support people who give out strategic advice versus just administrating a standard process um so that's like that's where we were we wanted to go and sadly enough like we can't do that within the timeline that we have and so we have to motivate others to do it so and over the next coming months it's all about sharing the insights that we have and um 
trying to convince others to take on this work because it's it's work. It's just the beginning for other people. For other people. <laughs> You're done. I'm done. That's awful. Um, so what went well? Um, what went well? Uh, I think the approach worked well, although day to day, like it's a lot of work. Um, two workshops, two half day workshops a week. Uh, we spent eight weeks and I, I, I remember like nothing beyond those workshops. Like I, it takes, it takes on average, uh, just as a lesson. So if, if anybody, if anybody wants to know when you design a workshop, you have to plan for three times the amount of time that you're going to run a workshop to plan the workshop. Mm. So if you're doing a half-day workshop, that's a day and a half worth of planning and operations and stuff like that. So if you're doing two a week, so that's one day. Technically, that's like, that's three days. So technically, your entire week is burnt by doing two half-day workshops every week for eight weeks. Like, it was really strange because originally in the plan, we were going to be blogging three times a week. (laughs) (laughs) I like your optimism. And so what's interesting is that people think that we died because um, we had such energy until September and then, boom, disappeared from the face of the earth. And it's like that's when we were literally working all the time. And um, and everybody's like, you guys went away. And I'm like, no, no, no. We were, we were just busy working on trying to reduce red tape. <laughs> um so that went very well. The like the the approach went very well. The participation was insane. I was, I I the fact that everybody came in, they brought alternates. Like by the end, there were some departments that had three times the amount of support that when they started. My group was consistently the same, if not bigger, throughout the entire process. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a good turnout of interviews for users. Uh, we met. From four out of five, the the five departments, um, there was a lot of enthusiasm to talk to us about all this stuff. But I think, um, like I said, I think they were slightly disappointed that we didn't come up with tangible solutions to help them. Although there are none, unlike GNCs and procurement, where there are things that they can do in staffing. It's like there's so many groups doing so many things that you pretty much have to play traffic cop in the middle of it going, okay, what are you trying to do? Are you helping this group or are you helping that group? No, you're not helping anyone. Okay, then you should back up. You should back up. Um, and so what would I do differently? This, If I had to do it again, um, it's really hard because um, you literally don't know what you don't know. Um, and you, you have to accept that you will not know everything from the get go, that there will be huge questions that will be left unanswered by the end of it. Um, I think a product, uh, sorry, a problem identification process is the right way to attack any problem. Because from what I can understand the last year, almost a year and, oh my God, almost two years of doing this, two years of working on red tape is that, we tend, and we, big we across government, tend to think about solutions before we think about the problem itself. So we think about a problem for about five minutes and spend the next three days building a solution. The problem with that is that we're still building solutions for problems that we haven't fixed. Staffing is still an issue in 2016. 
so it's procurement, so it's GNCs. It's probably still going to be a problem in 10 years. So we have to spend more time talking about the problem than less time talking about the solution. The solution will come in one shape or form once we finally understand what makes it tick. And there's a lot of things. And staffing, like we said, the process is like you can make the process as efficient as you want. But why are you picking that process in the first place is I, I don't understand that. So that's what you need to understand. <laughs> <laughs> So once you figure that out, then, okay. then we can talk. Um, so I think that's about it. I think we covered everything. Okay. Um, thank you, Todd. That was really wonderful. I hardly had to do anything. He asked his own questions. Then he answered them. So. I'm just here for comic relief. Okay. <laughs> You've been listening to Talking Feds. I'd like to thank my guest, Blaise Hubert. All opinions expressed on the program are strictly those of the individual and are not necessarily those of their employer. Talking Feds is planned, written, and technically produced using open-source software, Canboard, DocuWiki, and Audacity running on Kubuntu Linux and Linux Mint KDE Edition. Our theme music is by Jazar and is used under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike License. Talking Fed's content is free to use and share under the same CC by SA license, and episodes are always available on the open web at toddlines.ca. If you've got a comment, suggestion, or a question, please join the Talking Feds group on GC Connects. You can reach me directly at todd at toddlines.ca. I'm Todd Lyons. See you next time.